Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. This episode was recorded in Washington, D.C., with a story by the incredible author Edward P. Jones. Edward has won the Pulitzer Prize and a MacArthur Genius Grant. He's written several connected collections of short stories set in D.C. And the story you're about to hear takes place in an apartment building in the city on a particular dark and stormy day. It's from the collection entitled Lost in the City, and Edward has said that its format is somewhat inspired by James Joyce's Dubliners. This collection is a portrait of ordinary people living in D.C. They are fictional, but they are folks that Edward knows deeply and intimately. You'll also hear an excerpt of my conversation with Edward after the story. And of course, we had to have some live musical accompaniment, in this case also from a native Washingtonian. Her name is Elise Cuffey. She began playing the cello in the D.C. Youth Orchestra program, where she is now a conductor. She plays with her group, the String Queens, and she is also the principal cellist of the Soulful Symphony. I'm very excited for you to experience this story, so let's get started. Enjoy. Let's take a deep breath. And begin. A Dark Night by Edward P. Jones About four that afternoon, the thunder and lightning began again. The four women seated around Carmina Boone's efficiency apartment grew still and spoke in whispers when they spoke at all. They were each of them no longer young. And they had all been raised to believe that such weather was, aside from answered prayers, the closest thing to the voice of God. And so each, in her way, listened. 
They heard an apartment door down the long hall to the right open and close with utter violence, obviously pushed shut by the wind of the storm. Within seconds, they saw Ida Garrett move almost soundlessly past Carmina Boone's open door, a rubber-tipped brown cane in her good hand. She went the few yards to the end of the hall on the left and knocked again and again and again at what everyone in the room knew was the door of Beatrice Atwell's apartment. Beatrice was sitting in the middle of Carmina's couch, snug between the large Fraser sisters from the fifth floor. Then, just as soundlessly, Mrs. Garrett was standing small and silent in Boone's doorway. She could not have looked any more forlorn if she had been out in the storm, breathing as if each breath would be her last, her wig perched haphazardly on her head as if it had been dropped from the ceiling by accident, her pocketbook hanging from the arm that a stroke had permanently folded against her body, her eyeglasses resting near the end of her nose where they could possibly do her no good. I was passing, she said with effort to Carmina, and I saw your door was open. Leaning against the door jamb, she blinked in an effort to adjust to a room that was lit only by a 40-watt bulb, another concession to the voice of God. Several times, she shifted the scarred cane from the good hand to the bad, and just when the bad hand seemed about to drop it, she would take it back. I was passing and saw your door was open, boom. She continued to repeat herself until Carmina stood and went to her, reassured Mrs. Garrett with a light touch of the hand. You know you always welcome here, Miss Garrett. She took the woman's elbow and led her to a chair at the dining table. I was thinking about you, me and the Frasers, but somebody said you'd been under the weather, so I thought I shouldn't bother you. It began to rain, no more than a soft tapping at the window. I'm fine by the help of the Lord. Mrs. Garrett said, sitting. She settled herself, patting her wig and making sure her dress was well down over her knees. Her movements seemed practiced, like those of someone who did everything according to the way it was set out in some book. She placed her cane across her lap and leisurely began to pick pieces of lint off her dress, a silk-like polka-dotted thing that shimmered with what seemed huge green eyes. Then, with a flash of lightning and burst of thunder, she jerked her head up as if the whole thing had been directed at her, personally, the thunder an inch from her ear and the lightning just in front of her eyes. She waited, and when there was quiet for several minutes, she sighed, then began to take note of the four other women. They had been watching her intently, but when she looked at them, they nodded and lowered their eyes or deftly turned their heads away. Only when they were addressed by name did the women look at her, smile, and ask how she was keeping. 
Beatrice, knitting on the couch between the Fraser sisters, did not look up. I'm surprised to see you here, Mrs. Garrett said to her. I thought you might be home. There was a bit of hurt to the last words. No, Beatrice said happily. I'm here. I'm right here. It seemed to give her so much pleasure to say these words that she repeated them again and again until she raised a thread to her mouth and bit it in two. I've come for the prayer meeting. So, that's what y'all hen's here for, Mrs. Garrett said and turned to Carmina at the other end of the table. Carmina nodded with a smile. Oh, but I hope y'all ain't gonna have that Reverend Sawyer again. He ain't nothing but a jackleg. He's a jackleg, Boone. I could tell the first time I laid eyes on him. Jackleg, I said to myself, as jackleg as they come. Carmina, seeking support, glanced at the others. It's him, but he's got a church of his own now, Miss Garrett, out in Northwest, just off Rhode Island Avenue. Having a church, Boone, don't mount to a hill of beams. Miss Garrett said with exasperation, it don't make a man a preacher called by God. Even I, she put her good hand over her heart, even I could say I'm a man of God, but that don't make it so. All having a church means is you got a little money to rent a hole in the wall and a few fools to come to the hole and give you their pennies. Well, I ain't a member of his church, Carmina said defensively, and don't plan to be a member. And I ain't never given money to come here to pray with us. Mrs. Garrett smiled knowingly. I, I do have some food for us all when you get here, but that's a everyday normal courtesy. Some sandwiches, some cake and punch, just things I picked up around the corner, wasn't no trouble. Mrs. Garrett looked askance at the food displayed on the table. He'll fill himself up off that belch once and look for more, she said. She leaned down and placed her cane on the floor beside her. And what time is this man of God specked on the premises? He said 3.30, Carmina said. 3.30, huh? And all the clocks in the world now saying is way past four. <laughs> Carmina shut the window just as the rain began to come in. With only the 40 watt burning in the lamp on the table, the room was on the verge of darkness, but each flash of lightning would give a ghastly brightness to the place. And for those moments, everything in the room could be clearly seen. And what? you doing over there, Atwell? Working away like a, a tiny little mouse, Mrs. Garrett said. Sewing, Beatrice said. Making something for my new grandchild. Oh, Lanny dropped another one, huh? <laughs> you didn't even tell me. A girl, a little over a month ago, the two Fraser sisters on either side of Beatrice were tall women, weighing each about 200 pounds, and they seemed to spread out much more than when they were standing. 
Beatrice weighed little more than 110 pounds, and if there had been no words from her, she might well have gone unnoticed. And you never told me, Mrs. Garrett said. Mm, mm, mm. I always thought well of Lanny. She turned slowly to Carmina, and as she turned, her smile widened. But that husband of Lanny's keeps her having babies. Who can keep up with how many they have? She the babiest having woman I ever knowed of. <laughs> One after the other after the other. Silent and still, except for the motion of her hands, Beatrice never looked up. Carmina prayed for the Reverend Sawyer to turn up. If nothing stopped her, Mrs. Garrett would sit in that chair and rain down devilment all day and all night and all day some more. Carmina thought it had to do with her being 91 years old and thinking she was closer to God than any human being in the world. Mrs. Garrett and Beatrice had once been so close that people joked they would be buried together in the same casket. Now Mrs. Garrett was forever after Beatrice, as if the final task standing between her and the key to heaven was to make Beatrice suffer. Beatrice, however, treated Mrs. Garrett as she would a child who didn't know any better. Toward 5.30... Not long after Mrs. Garrett had asked again what time the Reverend Dr. Sawyer was supposed to arrive, the telephone rang. Carmena answered and spoke but a few words before hanging up. She announced that it had been Reverend Sawyer's wife, that his car would not start, and that he apologized to everyone for not being able to make the prayer meeting. Waving her hand over the table, she told her guests that there was no need to let the food go to waste and one by one, the women got up and helped themselves. The storm, the thunder and lightning had stopped, but there was still the rain, a nuisance scratching at the window. Once the women were seated again, the conversation took varied turns and the autumn evening wore away. Mrs. Garrett, perhaps dulled by the food, had less to say than anyone. At one point, the Fraser sister nearest the window commented on how particularly bad the weather had been lately. They all agreed, and Mrs. Garrett, capping one hand over her knee, said that she could not remember when old man Arthur and the rightest boys had caused her so much pain that sometimes she felt she would never walk again. The other women gave sympathetic nods, one or two mentioning their own aches and pains, and then they all began to exchange remedies. Beatrice stuck her needle with finality into the piece she was working on and put it in a cloth bag at her feet. Looking about the room, she said quietly, It all reminds me of one summer back home. It was kind of like it is now, day after day. Oh, now, Atwell, we ain't gonna have one of your down-home-way-back-when stories, are we? 
Mrs. Garrett said. We ain't had an evening of prayer, but we've been trying to keep it as close to that as we can. How, B? Carmina said, ignoring Mrs. Garrett. How does this remind you of back home? Mrs. Garrett rubbed the elbow of her bad arm, then put the bad hand in the center of her lap. Beatrice said nothing for several seconds. Thundered and lightning a lot then, too, she said. I guess I was 16 or 17, and this fella I was keeping company with was sitting with me and my daddy on my daddy's porch, and there was a storm coming on while we were sitting there. There had already been a lot of rain, but not enough to do that much damage to the crops. I remember it was late in the evening, and so dark I could barely make out what was three feet in front of me. It was already raining when the thunder and lightning come up and we was just sitting and talking. Maybe a half hour or more into that storm, I started seeing this figure, this thing that kind of just stood in that corn patch in my mother's garden and If I didn't know the garden, I would have thought it was a scarecrow or something. It it, it, it was no further than from here to that television there. I, I looked and looked trying to see into all of that dark. And then I told myself it was just a big corn stalk leaning out, heavy with the rain. It made a move a corn stalk ain't supposed to make, but I tried not to think about it. It's corn, I said to myself. But when this thing moved again, moved different from all the other corn, I said this real quiet. Oh, I touched the fella I was keeping company with and pointed and we looked together. My daddy looked too. This corn stalk, this thing said, Uncle, Uncle B. Then it moved a few steps toward us. It was this cousin of mine, John Henry. He came even closer and just dropped heavy to the ground, crying like a baby. I said, John Henry, what's wrong? What is it? My daddy was already getting up. It's them, he said. He was crying so hard that I could barely make out what he was saying. It's them, he kept saying. They just sitting there. My daddy went down the steps to him, and when he touched John Henry, John Henry just jumped right up real quick, like he was some doll and something that pulled him up by the neck. And he took off down the path that led from his place to where we lived, And the three of us, my my daddy, me, and this fellow I was keeping company with took off after him. It was raining way harder than it is right now, and we was soaked through for we even took a few steps. And all the way down there, I kept praying, Lord, don't let me get struck by lightning. When we got to the house, John Henry was there looking in the front door. John Henry? My daddy said, John Henry. 
we got there and looked in too. Everybody was just sitting around, like he had said. My Uncle Joe, his wife, Abby, her mother, and my Uncle Ray. There was a pipe sticking in Uncle Ray's mouth, not lit, just sticking there like he did sometimes. The only light was coming from a coal oil lamp on the mantelpiece and from a real small fire in the fireplace. It never crossed my mind why they would have a fire burning on a summer evening, but there it was, this one log that they kept there all spring and all summer, and it was steady burning right in the center. And I think I thought to myself how dark they all looked, but I put that to how feeble the light in the room was. They was all kind of gathered around the hearth, which wasn't too strange, because y'all know how some folks use the fireplace for the center of the house all year round. There was a bunch of smells in that room. One was the kind you get when wood gets wetter, and another was burnt hair. But around all of the smells was this one I hadn't smelled before and ain't smelled since. It was everything dead you would ever come across in your whole life piled at one time in that room. Joe, Ray, my daddy said to his brothers. Uncle Joe was sitting in that chair he'd made with his own hands and he was staring at us. No, not really at us, kind of through us and around us at the same time. Joe... My daddy went over to him. Joseph! My daddy touched him, and my uncle did nothing. Then my daddy pulled on my uncle's shirt front, and my uncle fell into my daddy's arms, right into his arms like some dime store dummy. And that told us right then that he and everybody else was gone. It told me anyway. The fella I was keeping company with just said, Jesus Christ. I fixed my eyes on him when he said that. I was feeling all kinds of things standing there, and you know, one of them was this feeling that I couldn't ever keep company with that boy again. (laughs) I looked around the room. This long black line that had cut a rut in the floor went from the fireplace through that group of people right out the room to the kitchen. Like somebody had took a big fireball of barbed wire and run across the floor with it. They was just sitting there and they was all gone. You could see where Aunt Evie's mother had been rocking the crib with Aunt Evie's baby in it. A wind was coming down the chimney and through the door, and it was rocking the crib, rocking Aunt Evie's mother's hand right along with it. I thought the baby was dead too, but when I saw a leg twitch, I knowed he was alive. I picked him up, and he didn't look surprised to see me. He didn't look happy or sad or anything, just a baby waiting for the next thing in his life to happen. I put Aunt Evie's mother's hand in her lap. I did it calm-like, and I was surprised at myself, the way I was acting. I must have been scared somewhere inside, but it was a long time before I noted. And then it stayed and never went away. 
Lightning. The fella I was keeping company with said, Lightning. My daddy had put his brother back in the chair and he was standing there looking down at him and my Uncle Ray. And the fella I was keeping company with pointed at the way the black line ran along the floor and out of the room. Just came down the chimney, Mr. Davenport, he said, proud that he knew what he knew. Look at it. And when we looked again, when he said that, not so much because of what he said, but because something in our heads told us to make an everlasting memory of it. John Henry came into the house and went on out into the kitchen, his mud tracks walking right over that black line. And I followed him, and I seen where the black line came to the kitchen table and hopped right up on it, threw everything every which way, then jumped back down to the floor and ran out the back door. One of the straightest lines you ever want to see. John Henry's little sister was sitting at the table. Alma was alive. She was crying real soft, and I don't think she'd moved since it happened. John Henry sat down and put his head in his hands. He started crying again. All of a sudden, I got weak as that dish rag there. I held the baby and watched them children, their whole family, my family too, people who'd never done a moment's harm to a soul, not one moment's harm. Something in me was struck by that when I started thinking of Uncle Ray's pipe sticking in his mouth and when I saw that one of Alma's plates had come loose like they do on little girls. I didn't know what else to do, so I leaned Alma's head against my stomach. Then I told him that it would be all right, but it didn't mean anything and I knew it. If somebody had told me to say that tomorrow would be Easter, I would have said that instead. But I kept saying that everything would be all right until my daddy came in and picked up Alma and told us he was taking us home. The other women in Carmina Boone's apartment were all quiet. And they were quiet for a long time. The rain had long since stopped. Finally, Mrs. Garrett said, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Her dentures made a soft clicking sound as she spoke. For good or for bad, the Lord seeks you out and finds you. There ain't no two ways about that. She looked about the room as if for confirmation. And when no one said anything, she seemed to fold up into the silence. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Now, let's get back to our story. They were all quiet again until Mrs. Garrett began to talk about the 11th of August, 1894, the night she was saved. The others looked knowingly at one another. The story never changed. A huge tent and an itinerant preacher and a little girl who was overcome that night with something she would years later learn to call the Holy Ghost. She had been frightened at first with this thing that commanded without talking, she said, but it comforted her and led her down the aisle of the tent to the preacher's outstretched arms. The story, after a thousand tellings, had ceased being an experience to share, but was more like an incantation she had to chant to reaffirm for herself the importance of that night. He said... I was the youngest person in five counties to ever be saved, to ever find the Lord, she was saying. Reverend Dickinson told me that, told everybody in the tent. And I've walked in the light of the Lord ever since. Why don't y'all have some more of this cake, Carmina said, or take it with you. I'll never eat it all. She provided aluminum foil, and each woman put two slices in the foil and prepared to leave. At the door, as they said their good nights, Carmina asked Beatrice to tell that joke she had heard her tell once, the one about the dark night. Before Beatrice had said a word, Mrs. Garrett made her way through the group and went to her apartment. After they heard Mrs. Garrett lock her door, Carmina asked again to tell about the dark night. Well, my daddy, Beatrice said, my daddy and my Uncle Joe would fun around a lot, mostly for us kids, like two fellas on a radio show. And every now and then, my daddy would say, Joe, what's the darkest night you ever knowed? Tell me, Joe. 
My Uncle Joe would play with his chin for a bit like he was thinking, let's see, he'd say, let's see, oh, yes, yeah, yes. I remember this one night, I was sitting at home all by my lonesome, nobody for company but the four walls and the memory of company. It commenced to rain and rain, and I heard this knocking at my door. So I get up and open the door. Well, sir? Who was it but these raindrops? A whole passel of raindrops looking down at me, looking scared and cold. And the one at the front says to me in this real squeaky voice, Mister, it's so dark out here, so very dark. Would you please mind telling us which way it is to the ground? And that my uncle would say, is the darkest night I ever knowed. <laughs> we all bust out laughing, especially the little kids who thought it was the funniest thing in the world to have talking raindrops. About four that morning, the lightning and thunder began again. At the first blast of thunder, a sleeping Mrs. Garrett sprang up in her bed like a puppet jerked suddenly to life by its master, her head turning first this way and then the other. Her heart, usually so docile, began to throw itself about its cage. Oh, dear Jesus, she whispered. She flung back the covers with her good arm and swung her legs out of the bed, and in reaching for her glasses, she tipped over the plastic cup that contained her teeth. She did not bother to pick them up, but threw on her robe and took up her cane. The lightning lit her way to the door. Taking her key from a small table, she went out the door, and the wind closed it behind her with such viciousness that she nearly fell to the hall floor. As she moved down the hall, an enclosed area with no windows, she could hear the clamor of thunder and the whistling of wind coming from under the doors of the apartments. With their half-globe coverings, the ceiling lights provided a long line of moons all the way down the hall. She knocked lightly at Beatrice's door. And when Mrs. Garrett heard a thunder boom come from under the door of the next apartment, she knocked with greater insistence. Who is it? Beatrice asked. It's me. There was a long, long pause. Then Beatrice asked again, who is it? It's me, me. There was a pause again, but Beatrice unlocked the door and took off the chain and cracked the door. Mrs. Garrett avoided Beatrice's eyes and stared into the heart of the flame of the candle Beatrice was holding. Be, it's me, Mrs. Garrett said. Why are you all the time knocking at my door, woman? Beatrice said, we ain't no friends no more. Did you forget that? The candle's flame swayed with each word she spoke. Please, B, you know how it can be. Please, don't leave me out here. Have some pity. With two thunderclaps, Beatrice opened the door. You lucky, 
she said, shutting and locking her door. I was just about ready to go in that bathroom. And you know, when I go in there, I don't come out for a soul. Her hair was in plates and she wore a nightgown that swept the floor as she moved. Thank you, Mrs. Garrett mumbled, still looking only into the flame. Thank you so much. Beatrice did not help Mrs. Garrett with her chair and in the end, Mrs. Garrett had to drop her cane and drag the chair into the bathroom with her good arm. The cane hit the floor with a clatter. There are people sleeping, Beatrice said from inside the bathroom. When Mrs. Garrett had made her way with the chair into the bathroom, Beatrice closed the door, and as soon as she did, there was the ripping sound of thunder that bounded across the outside room and found its way under the door of the windowless bathroom. Beatrice set the candle in the sink, then she spread a blanket across the door's threshold. Mrs. Garrett put her chair beside the hamper made into the wall, and with a sigh, Beatrice put down the toilet cover and sat down. How long you think it might last, B? How long? Why you always ask me such stupid goddamn questions? (laughs) The blanket did nothing to moderate the violence of the thunder, and it continued to sound as if it were outside the door. Ain't you gonna blow out the candle? Mrs. Garrett said. Beatrice leaned over and blew lightly, and in the quickest of moments, the room was engulfed in darkness. Mrs. Garrett began to pray a long, monotonous mumble of words. Once or twice a boom would produce a small yelp of surprise from each woman, but they did not comfort one another. Over time, the intensity of the thunder grew until it was like a pounding at the bathroom door, and each time it pounded, the women would look toward the door as if they were making up their minds whether to get up and answer it. The end. Please give it up for Elise Cuffey. And now, my conversation with Edward P. Jones. Well, what'd you think? Better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My first question, um, is it Pulitzer or Pulitzer? Whichever sounds good. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I, I get confused, and I, I, I say Pulitzer, but then I see, you know, talking heads on the news say Pulitzer, and I think, well, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. You um, are an 
amazingly intense writer and have such a knack for character. Where do all of these people come from in your head? I, I can't give you an answer to that. You know, we're born with certain um, talents, I suppose, and mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to find that um, I could do stories. Um, I was very, very fortunate, you know, especially because I came from a mother who couldn't read or write, mm -hmm. but she insisted that I get an education. Part of that was learning how um, reading is so important, and from that, from understanding how important reading is, came the storytelling. When did you know you were a writer? Was there a, a moment or a period in your life when the sort of the light bulb came on? Uh, I think somewhere in college when I knew I didn't want to have a job where I had to wear a tie every day. Mm. <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it. There was a period of time in, in your life, and maybe you continue to now, uh, you watch a, a lot of Judge Judy. Is, <laughs> is, is, is that because of the, the human stories, or no. is it just mindless sort of... They keep saying that, and I don't know why they do. Really? But I, when I, w I did have a television, I watched all the court shows. You like the court shows? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think just because uh, they were all real people. Yeah. When I was a kid, um, we didn't have a television, but I would visit neighbors, and I remember one show they had during the day was Divorce Court. Mm -hmm. And it was quite obvious to me that all those people were actors. Right. So right. when I got to an age where I had the money to buy a TV, I particularly wanted to watch the court shows because all those were real people. They were real people, like mm. the people in yep. your stories. Yeah. You have a very interesting relationship with technology. Yeah? Uh, that's what they say, but I never think about it. <laughs> I mean, I have a computer. You do. Uh, I don't have a car. Right. The uh, public transportation system in Washington is pretty good. Pretty good, right. Um, that's about it. <laughs> I, I had a television up until 2009, and then they switched to HD. Uh-huh. And then I couldn't get any TV, even with an right. antenna. Right. So I haven't had a television in 10 years. They, so. they, they lost you with the HD. Yeah. 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 No more Judge Judy. No more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think somebody out there wants to buy you a television. <laughs> <laughs> you were and I can really relate to this. You were incredibly close to your mom. You mentioned mm. her earlier. Um, she couldn't read. Nope. She couldn't write. Uh, Signed her name. With an X. With an X. Yeah. But she insisted that you go to school. Yep. Did she need mm. to encourage you much? No, because she, um, the work she had was working in a, in a restaurant, and mm -hmm. she, you know, washed dishes, peeled potatoes, and all the rest of it that goes along with a job like that. So yeah. I saw how hard she was struggling. Right. And the last thing I wanted to do was make life harder for her. Right. So, you know, it was uh, easy for me to get up every day and go off to school. 
Um, and then in 11th grade, um, teachers began talking about college, and so I made sure to apply. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so she never really said anything outright, but there is a, something that a parent conveys to a child. An unspoken yeah. dictum. Yes. Mm -hmm. You will go to school. Yeah. You <laughs> will get an education. <laughs> I had a mother like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Single parent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Raising her kids by herself. Yeah, and you sort of, um, as I grew older, I began to understand how hard it must have been for her. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine going into a, a supermarket and seeing a wall of soup. Mm -hmm. And Campbell's soup, at least once upon a time, doesn't have pictures. Right. So, you know, you want tomato, how do you find out if it's tomato? Right. You have to ask someone. Right. And people aren't always kind when you ask them a question like that. Mm-hmm. So you um, were sensitive to the struggles that your mom had, yeah. mm -hmm. just moving through life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You collected for a time phrases from your past, some of them that your mother used to say. Yeah, um, I have somewhere a notebook that I haven't come across in many years, but there is a certain way that black people talk. Right. You know, there is a kind of poetry to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think probably with every word that I write, I try to get that across. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's... Every goodbye ain't gone. Ah. Every sleep I ain't sleep. Right. <laughs> right. Every shed I ain't sleep. Um... <laughs> My, my, my mother-in-law says uh, about anything that happens, if, like we're saying goodnight, she says, well, the good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. <laughs> <Yeah. Right>. <laughs> <laughs> That's how black people talk. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and after a while, I mean, you know, it's, it's an old phrase, but after a while it becomes new right. because they don't always say it anymore. Right. Most people don't say it anymore. Yeah, no, they don't. Mm. No, they don't. Um, you, in all of your stories, you populate them with people that are from your imagination, but mm -hmm. you locate them in real places here in the city. I do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, we're all blessed with imagination, and the problem is a lot of us get educated to the point where we no, we no longer have an imagination. Mm. I was absent on those days when they did that to people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's important for me that even though the people are made up, that I put them in a, um, a building mm -hmm. on a street that's real. Right. Mm -hmm. This apartment building that our story tonight uh, takes it's place Claridge in. It's Claridge Towers at, on the 1200 block of Elm Street Northwest. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I, one day I would like to come back to Washington, D.C. And, and take the Edward P. Jones tour. <laughs> Right? Yeah. Visit some, well, some of the, just well, the, the addresses and buildings. Yeah. That the problem is that um, by the time I was 18, we lived in 18 different places. Because my mother, you know, she could just afford the minimum in terms of housing. Hmm. So we ended up moving around a lot. And the result is that I can't go back to a particular place and say this is home. Right. Yeah, all the streets, all the places where I lived, I know them. So you come, I will take you. <laughs> I would like that very, very much. 
You said that one of the ways that you write is you, you begin with the climax of the story, right? And then, and then you go from there. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, it, an image will come, mm -hmm. and it's a woman or a girl. And the task then, the chore, becomes to build a story around that. Right. And it's important that I know how it all is, is, will end. Because otherwise, you can start at the beginning. And if you don't know the ending, you are writing all over the place. Right. But if you know the ending, you're writing towards that ending. And you don't get lost. Hmm. I'm fascinated that, that after your, your, your first novel, you, you constructed your, 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 your next book in your head. Yeah, it was, uh, second book was a novel, first, uh, first novel, and uh, um, uh, it's 1855 Virginia, and the center of it is a black man who owns slaves. Who owns slaves. I had about 40 or so books on American slavery, and my intention was to, um, right after the first book, Lost in the City, came out, was to read all the books and then sit down and start writing right. uh, the novel. Uh, but I think there, it was a logical part of my brain that thought I had to do that. The creative part of the brain felt that that wasn't necessary. But I kept putting off the reading um, year after year after year. Of the, of the um, research? Yeah. Yeah? Didn't do any. But the creative part of my... <laughs> The creative part of my brain was working away. So after 10 years, I had a very general idea of what the novel should be. And I just sat down and started writing. Uh, I think that what I learned, what, I, what my, that creative part of my brain knew, is that as long as the characters are in the forefront and real and logical, then you don't really need a lot of research. If I tell you it's 1855 Virginia, then you'll believe it until I have some character walk down the road with a Rolex. Hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I, I, I believe every character in your stories. Um, some of them I feel like I met in my childhood. Some of them I feel like are related yeah. to me. <laughs> <laughs> Your, your mom um, died in a hospital. Yeah, she had lung cancer. She had lung cancer. And I don't know if it's still true, but you teach here in town. Yes, yeah. George Washington. At George Washington. And um, you can look and yeah. see where that hospital is. Now yeah. it's like a vacant lot. Yeah, no, it's not vacant anymore. It's uh, the corner of 22nd and I, uh -huh. and uh, my office and uh, the place, the seminar room is right on one corner mm -hmm. and diagonally across the street where there's a Whole Foods that used to be George Washington University Hospital, and right. that's where she died. That's where she died. I, it's I, rather strange to be able to look across and see this place. What a remarkable yeah. sort of circle, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. mm. You know how proud of you, she was? People say that, but I, you know, I, I want to believe that. <laughs> there's a part of you that doesn't? Nah, yeah, there's a big part of me that doesn't. Yeah. Hmm. Why is that? I don't know. I, I, think, I think maybe because there are a lot of things that I could have given her, you know, um, now that I have money to do that. Sure. I mean, she was a big fan of... Uh, 
um, Bonanza. Mm-hmm. She was she was in love with Lauren Green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she liked the Beverly Hillbillies. Mm-hmm. She never had a, a color television, right. but you know I could get her one now and right. get all the DVDs she would want. You and, would have to be yeah. okay with HD. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> For her, I think I could handle it. Awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks to you, Mr. Edward P. Jones, for being my guest. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is the very talented Julia Smith. She's the best in the business, y'all. We also had help from Audrey No. This episode was edited by the alliterative Brendan Burns and our music today by the incomparable Elise Cuffey. You can find her and two other amazing musicians playing as part of the String Queens. Visit thestringqueens.com. And my undying thanks to Mr. Edward P. Jones for being my guest and allowing me to read his story. You can find it in his collection entitled Lost in the City, where every story is a gem, believe you me. And if you love this show and want to help other people find it, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're leaving said review, why not suggest a story for the show? LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and Jenny Radelette of the Flying Radelette Sisters and me, LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.